Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a new Cold War drama starring Benedict Cumberbatch from director Dominic Cook, and that film is The Courier. But first, we'll be checking out a new film on Netflix from director Amy Poehler based on an adaptation of a YA novel uh, called Moxie. Hey, Mom, what do uh, 16-year-olds care about? When I was 16, all I cared about was smashing the patriarchy and burning it all down. Oh, my God. Girls constitute a revolution. Did you hear rankings are already starting? Emma Cunningham's just going to get ranked most bangable for the second year in a row. Kira Pascal for best ass. Caitlin Price, I'll take best rap. It's so nice not to be on anyone's radar. Totally. Seriously? We're going! Oh, can I help you? I don't know, can you? He's bothering you. He's harassing me. If you use that word, that means I have to do a bunch of stuff. You know that your school is weird, right? Ignore Mitchell. If you keep your head down, we'll move on and bother somebody else. I'm gonna keep my head up. Hi. Why have we all accepted it? Like, no one even blinks. Me and my friends protested everything. We made a ton of mistakes. But you're glad you did it all, right? Of course. What are you gonna do? Nothing? Whoever wrote Moxie is a badass. You know what's messed up? I got sent home for wearing a tank top. Meanwhile, Jason is constantly shirtless. People refuse to call me by my new name. I don't like being voted best ass. Says to draw hearts and stars on your hands to show support. That's hot. That was from the trailer of Moxie, the new film from director Amy Poehler, with a screenplay by Tamara Chestnut and Dylan Meyer based on a novel by Jennifer Mathieu. A novel which tells the story of an American high school wherein a girl named Viv, or Vivian, uh, is suddenly taken aback by all of the rampant, pervasive, and well-accepted sexism at her school and decides to fight back against it by starting a, uh, a riot girl zine in the tradition of the uh, of the 1990s riot girl genre. Uh, no, I did not come to that conclusion on my own, although I, I knew that that... Uh, that that aesthetic had a particular name that is associated with bands like Bikini Kill, which is featured in the film. Uh, I definitely relied on uh, on another reviewer's characterization for what Riot Girl uh, actually meant. So I will link to that in the show notes here. But uh, Daniel, this film, uh, first of all, it's the second film from uh, director Amy Poehler. I did not see her first one, Wine Country, but uh, this film is... Uh, I would say that it is a competent adaptation. It juggles quite a lot of characters around, and it manages to uh, to add a little bit of depth to each one of them. It has a very diverse cast and complicated ecosystem that it is working in, but I think that uh, I think that it has some problems. So, uh, Daniel, I'll put it to you first. What did you think of this film? Gotta be honest with you, Glenn. Uh, when we were talking about movies to watch this week, I said, "I guess I could watch Moxie, but please don't make me watch Moxie." And we ended up watching Moxie. So a friend of the show, Sheila, was a big fan of the uh, of this film and recommended it to to both of us. As I recall, this is a film that uh, it, it came out with a trailer that very much reminded me of Mean Girls. I don't know if you made that same connection. Kind of. Yes, I saw Sheila's recommendation and I didn't want to say anything negative to front of the podcast, Sheila. But this felt a bit too wokey for me, at least in the trailer. And I have no issue with fem- you know, feminist, you know, film or feminist, you know, literature. I just felt like, oh, is this like baby's first protest? Like, oh, Daniel, we're gonna have some fun here because you and I are actually on opposite sides of this film. You think the film was too woke. I think the film was not quite woke enough. No, 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 no. That was my impression on the trailer. But upon viewing the film, it is definitely not woke enough. 
Uh, so I think you and I have some similarities there. But I guess that to finish my thought, what, what I think of the film, I felt like for a movie adapted from a young adult piece of literature, it was fine. It, it introduced themes that I think are important for people to talk about. I think they do something in the very last third of the, of the film, and I was like, wait, wait, we're going here, what now? But overall, I thought the acting was solid. I honestly, I guess, identify with the English teacher, uh, Mr. Davies. Mr. Ooh, Davies boy. and I, I, we get each other. I have a lot of commentary on the film, which we'll get into in a moment. I didn't hate it. I just, like, I, I thought I was going to hate it from the trailer. I just didn't think it was, I didn't think it was good, but I felt like for a, a film that's talking about some pretty serious issues, it introduces those issues in a, I guess, fairly germane way, I guess. It was aggressively fine. I think the film has a problem that is revealed in the first act that really bothered me early on, and that problem is... The Great Gatsby. <laughs> no, not so much. Uh, that problem is people of color cheerleading white people. Yeah, uh, as they as they come to terms with things. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean we have Mitchell played by Patrick Schwarzenegger, who is the captain of the football team and just sort of your your prototypical high school shithead. By the way, Patrick <laughs> Schwarzenegger is twenty seven years old. Just so you, uh, he you know, looks it. He here. looks it. He doesn't look like a high schooler. Uh, however, Hadley Robinson, who plays Viv, is in fact 25, So, uh, it, and she looks very much younger than that. So they, so the casting of this film was all over the place. It definitely had a bit of that 1990s, uh, you know, these are clearly 20-somethings, even upper yeah, 20-somethings yeah. playing these people. But it, it also clearly used a few actual teenagers, so I, I'm not sure what to make of that. But we get introduced to another, uh, another character that Viv meets for the first time named Lucy Hernandez, and this is played by Alicia Pascual-Pina. And basically... She gets the idea of uh, Viv gets the idea of starting this riot girl zine from her mother, uh, played by Amy Poehler, her mother Lisa, who uh, who used to want to smash the patriarchy when she was sixteen. And you know they they have a fairly honest conversation about what that was like. You know how it was tone deaf, how it was very white. It was uh, how you know they they called their they called their their meetings of their feminist club powwows, like just all the blind spots that white people who were trying to be liberal in that era had and still have. This is the problem fundamentally with this film is that it thinks that it understands these things just because it's mentioning them. It takes them off on a box. Yeah, I mean, there is a scene near the end of this film where uh, where a character stands up. This character is Valerie, played by the actress Raven Owens. She stands up to tell everyone that her, her hair, which is the hair of a black girl, it is curly, it's big. She mentions a few offensive words that are used to describe it by white people and says, hey, it's not any of these things. It's my hair. I love it. It's beautiful. And no, you can't touch it. Lovely sentiment. It's something that I've, you know, it's something that I've heard, uh, you know, Ijoma Oluo has, has an entire chapter on this in her book, so you want to talk about race. You know, I get that the issue with black girls and hair is a thing, and Amy Poehler clearly gets that issue as well, as does possibly the, the author of this novel. The problem is this character did not exist prior to this moment in the movie, and it's like the last scene in the movie. I know. It, it was one more box that needed to be uh, marked off. Yeah, I, I, mean, it, I don't it, get it the hair fall. thing. I don't yeah. get the hair th- Why would anyone touch anybody else's hair? With their dirty ass hands. I know, I, it's I, disgusting. <laughs> I barely touched my wife's hair. I mean, it's not an impulse that I've ever uh, that I've ever felt the need to. Indulge, Am I supposed but... to be touching people's hair? Have I been doing this whole thing wrong the whole time? Like, if people are outraged of people touching each other's hair, I don't touch anybody's hair. Well, I don't think we need to get too far down this rabbit hole, but I think that touching someone's hair is a very personal thing that you should only ask of somebody that you are in a personal relationship with. <laughs> so... Am I allowed to touch your hair? 
uh, yeah, because we're friends. And if you were to ask me nicely, I'd be like, sure, you want to know what my fucking scraggly beard feels like or uh, or how, how much contrast there is with my silky locks? By all means. But not anybody on the street could walk up and touch <laughs> my hair. That would be weird. That would be weird. Yeah, so, and, and, you know, the idea that... Uh, but but that's not the problem here. The problem is not that, that the hair thing is not a legitimate issue. It, the problem is that the hair thing was brought up by a character who's not a character. <laughs> it was like a featured yeah. extra. I didn't understand why she was there. Now... The movie dives a little deeper on some other some other issues, and more to the point, it allows people of color to drive their own aspects of the plot at multiple points in this film. Lucy starts off as a side character who is just, "Hey, I'm from the Bay Area. I've seen this kind of this kind of stuff before. I know how to stand up in front of people and make speeches and be a leader." And all of a sudden, Lucy is the one who is leading this this boxy movement within the school. She's the more interesting character. And that is fine because Viv is st- is stepping back and saying, hey, this is somebody who, A, has perspective that I don't have because of her own experiences, and B, is is somebody who's clearly more comfortable voicing this stuff in front of other people instead of anonymously than I am. So that aspect of it worked for me, but it also still felt like it was ticking boxes. I mean, there was a, there was a trans girl there who, who had this, who had maybe like two lines about how she wanted to, uh, to she wanted to audition for Audrey in the school's musical of, uh, of she wanted to sing suddenly Seymour in little shop of horrors. And then we see her do that. And that's the end of her character. <laughs> that's the end of her entire arc. Yeah. We see a girl in a wheelchair telling the uh, popular girls, Hey, get the fuck out of the way. I'm trying to get up the ramp. She was a little nicer than that and didn't have to be like, you're in my way. You're using the thing. I need to get up there. Like, but again, ticking a box. She's in maybe one or two more scenes. That happened to me one time. I was, I was waiting for the bus and I was, I was just busy with my phone and a gal in a wheelchair was riding up. I didn't notice her. And she kind of, told me not so nicely to get out of the way. And I was like, oh, sorry. And I, I stepped out of the way. And then she just, like, talked shit about me as she wheeled past me. And I was like, fair enough. I was definitely in the way. Again, we could go down a rabbit hole of talking about what a legitimate issue that is because that is a problem this person has to deal with that we don't have to deal with. And us being able to stand there is part of our privilege. But this is as far as the movie goes on any of these issues. It Check, is just one on. line and one and done. It went farther in some other areas. So there's there's a character, Kiara, played by Sydney Park, who is the captain of the girls' soccer team. And, well, Mitchell, the shithead uh, football guy, played by Patrick Schwarzenegger. How dare is, you? Is... Mitchell Red Great Gatsby. I don't, can I tell you, I took classes with basketball players in college, as well as the some of the football players. They didn't do the damn reading. Mitchell <laughs> did the reading. I'm not sure I believe that Mitchell did the reading. There are uh, scenes I mean, where he's arguing of, with Professor Davies. One about, of Mike Barinholtz's best lines is when he uh, is when he says that uh, that what was it? Nick Carraway was played by Tobey Maguire in the movie. I think that that was what Mitchell was arguing on the basis of. You know, we read the Spark Notes and he saw the movie. That you know what? That is perfectly legitimate. At least he made an effort, which is more more than I can say about many other student athletes I've encountered. Mitchell is, I mean, Patrick Schwarzenegger is, uh, first of all, it was very strange seeing the adult son of Arnold Schwarzenegger on screen because I, this is the first time I've seen this. I know he's, I know he's got a, uh, he's had an acting career for about a decade now, but uh, this is the first thing I've really seen him in. And he's very off-putting in this film. He's, and he's supposed to be. The character is supposed to not be a good person. Well, he, he's um, solid as an antagonist for sure. I don't agree with that at all. I think that he is completely one-dimensional and boring as an antagonist. But all, I think but that, all of the all the characters are one-dimensional. 
Every character in the film is this is the issue that I represent. See, I don't agree with that, and I think that where the film uh, where the film excelled is where it is when it got into some depth in a few of the relationships in the film. So between Vivian and her friend Claudia, Cla- Claudia played by Lauren Sai, there wasn't much going on there at the beginning, but she gets that they get more interesting as the film goes on, and I liked that. Poor Claudia, um, were, representing yeah. the stereotype of the. The model minority, I believe, is what Mo- you're Model for. minority, the, the the tiger mom dynamic. Like, they could have given that character something else, like, of a background. So this is uh, this is something where I would have to... Sp- I, I don't want to speculate here, but Jennifer Matthew appears to be Asian-American just from, from the, her pictures here. And it's conceivable that this was a story that was given more depth in the book. And I just... Uh, I, I don't... It was obviously not the focus here. And there was there were some choices about what focus... Uh, what, well, what I didn't read the book, Glenn. We watched the movie. <laughs> Didn't either, but uh, and I'm not going to give the movie credit for things that were probably in the book, but uh, but I will say what I did like um, the relationship between Vivian and Lisa uh, was obviously it was given enough screen time and it was given enough time to sort of breathe that it felt very real, it felt very lived in, it felt as if when these two are challenging each other over the course of the film and also sharing ideas over the course of the film, it felt like this is the thousandth conversation they've had about these issues, and I really believed that as I was watching them. I I, I think that's a fair assessment. I know. Something that was bothering me the entire time in this film. Please. Where the hell was the technology? <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry, but like, we adopted the cloud, we millennials, but Gen Z, to, to quote Bang, was born in the cloud. That's where I thought you were going with that. Molded by it, you know? Like, what? where's the TikTok videos? Where's the Snapchat? Where's all the well, tech? Like, yeah, and, what and the, the millennials and the millennials and Gen Xers who made this film were clearly aware of like Instagram, but that was about the extent of it. We, you know, the, yeah. there's a Moxie Instagram. We see them posting on it. What That's about the it. fuck is a zine? <laughs> what it's is this? Zine. 1992. Where where's the characters? Like, why are we destroying the the, the environment to print these out? You could have uh, made this a snap story or whatever they're called. You could have made this a snap story. Where is our TikTok takedown of Mitchell? Yeah, it it's. This film feels like it has a blind spot about modernity as well. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to accept a certain amount of that from my films because I know the ages of the people that are actually making them. It's not about whether it reflects present day reality technologically or not. It's about whether it says something that still seems relevant and it says it in a way that is convincing. And I think the movie failed to execute on both of those. Well, yeah, the, the movie's supposed to be a re- like. You don't need to talk to millennials about these issues. Like this is like bringing like Gen Z, like these issues to Gen, like Gen Z audience, right? And you got to do that in, in like the types of media that they consume. They don't yeah. consume zines. Nobody consumes zines. I don't know what the it fuck is a bothering zine me is. more and more every time you pronounce it zine. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck it is. Some sort of like magazine, like yeah, it's a zine. It's short for zine. That's it for magazine. That's what it's what well, it is. whatever, right? Nobody reads magazines. So uh, there is another character here, Seth, played by Nico Haraga, who is a love interest for Viv. And just based purely on the genre conventions at work here, I was waiting for the nice young feminist boy to turn out to be a monster. Yeah, we have right. Uh, I have to say, this is me being complimentary of Haraga's performance here, but he never gave me any reason to think that that would be the case. He seemed like a kid who was genuinely trying his best the whole time. That didn't mean he would not step in it or fuck something up over the course of this. But generally speaking, this felt like, hey, here's a manual for how not to be a shithead in high school, basically. Be like Seth. And that, you know, to the extent the movie has a message, I think that maybe there's a bit of that. 
But apart from that, I uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I could not get over the there were there were the there was the odd little reference that was clearly written by somebody who was at least a minimum of ten years older than these characters when uh, when the character Caitlin, who is uh, who is a casualty of the school's dress code early on in the film, um, she has uh, let's say some décolletage uh, that is age appropriate, um, and she. Uh, she's kicked out of class because she's wearing a spaghetti strap kind of uh, kind of tank top, and uh, you know we've heard these stories before. It's uh, you know it's all about uh, the principals will always come up and uh, or the the administrators will always come up and say, hey, you can't be distracting the boys, as if the boys don't need to take responsibility for their own wandering fucking eyeballs during class, and uh, as if women and girls need to hide their bodies. <laughs> I was just going to say regarding her, when Caitlin gets kicked out of the room for violating the school's dress code, one of the students off screen uh, literally hollers, that's what you get for dressing like Britney Spears. Yeah, that's... First of all, hashtag hashtag free Britney. But second, what 17-year-old would make that reference at this point? I don't get it. Yeah, Britney's the millennial icon. She's not the Gen Z icon. Yeah, that's what you get for dressing like Ariana Grande. Like, even that's a passe reference. Yeah, Ariana Grande's like 25. I don't know. Who are the kids like now? Lord? I don't know. Uh, Lord no, is like not 19, Lord. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> no, whatever. I don't care. We're embarrassing ourselves, Daniel. So what are you going to say about I hardly today? care. Here's what I do care about. Why no one corrected Lucy in the first line that she says in the in the film that about the great Gatsby, saying it was a rich white man writing about another rich white man. But F. Scott Fitzgerald was poor when he wrote the great Gatsby. Oh, I did not know that. I know he, he eventually became kind of a socialite. Yeah, like after he died, <laughs> he became like important. I don't, I don't know these people. I read the book in high school. No, but here's the thing. She was wrong in the very first line that she sent in the film. It would have been nice if somebody corrected her because facts override feelings. <laughs> and also the but correct I- answer to her query is, well, we, we should read both. I mean, the idea of of questioning why we choose to tell the stories that we tell and why we choose to focus on the stories that we tell, and that affects us as well when we're deciding what films to review uh, here, what what films to ter- sort of both turn our critical and promotional eye on by discussing them. We are we are probably making sure that more people will end up seeing them. Um, it's the it's a valid question to raise, and even if you get some assumptions wrong about those people, it is still a book that is about rich white dudes. It's about and the twenties. We've got all kinds of books about rich white dudes. I mean, Charles Dickens at least turned his eye to the poor occasionally. <laughs> yeah, the poor are the worst. Nobody, nobody cares about the poor. No, I, I, the answer her, to her question is, well, we should read both kind of books. Like, we should read all books, all fiction from everybody. Like, not just focused on one specific subset. We, we've delved into this on the podcast before, the notion of what should be considered the canon, what should be considered, uh, what should be well-regarded, what should be considered essential literature. And what I keep coming back to is... It doesn't actually matter that much what people think should be in the canon, because at a certain point, people will move on. And if the work does not stand on its own merits, it will it will be swept away by other stuff. And the, and what we are starting to value in in society in a way that is long overdue is telling stories is is telling and elevating stories that are told by and for marginalized people that have not maybe had as wide of an audience for their stories before. And that strikes me as a good thing. It's it also means that our our interests are a bit more sprawling than they used to. The idea of everyone reading the same book in school may just go away. There will still be popular books. There will still be books that maybe a lot of people have heard about, but it's it's not as focused as it used to be. Yeah, well, once you're an adult, you can re- read whatever you want. But you say read both books as if there's just, you know, the, the rich white dude book and the poor non-white person. Exactly. <laughs> but, like, that's not how this works. You know, any anywhere we divert our attention, we're taking our attention away from something else, whether no, no, no what I mean is that, like, school curriculum should have a mix of 
a lot of different type of fiction that, you know, students are supposed to read, digest, and, and report on. I don't think we should spend too much time delving into this because uh, because currently the Republican Party is in the midst of a meltdown over a completely imaginary cancellation of Dr. Seuss. And I don't right. want anyone to I don't want anyone to mistake what we're discussing here for anything that we uh, that we're that we're concerned about. Because well, when, at the end of the day, you and I both know that if anybody wants to read The Great Gatsby, they will always be able to, especially right. now that it's in the fucking public domain. <laughs> okay, fine. Let's pivot to Kira. Kira is the captain Captain of the of the girls' soccer team, uh, state I think if not state champions, they're like state finalists, so that they perform well. And to make abundantly clear, the football team is terrible. But she she is running for a scholarship by I think what was it? Uh, I saw the movie a few days ago. It was, it was Big, Big Five Sporting Goods. Big Five, yeah. yeah. Big Five's offering ten grand uh, for for the for the scholarship. That's fantastic. Yeah, that'll cover about the first quarter. That'll be good. That'll cover books. Yeah, fantastic, right? And, you know, she runs, they, they do this campaign, they're so certain they're going to win. Well, before that, Principal Shelley basically allows Mitchell, to, uh, Mitchell, the shithead captain, to basically slouch his way into the role. So it, it, it's only because, and this is one of, the, one of the first instances of Lucy driving the plot, she shouts out, a nomination for Kiera at the uh, at the football game in front of everyone, and you know several more people seconded, and all of a sudden we've got a campaign going, and that was that was interesting to me at least. Yeah, that, that was like the first moment of the film where I'm like, oh, something we're actually building to something, right? You know, a campaign has a, a cycle to it, and, and there's you know beginning, middle, and end. Like I can get involved in 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 this journey, right? And as soon as they started celebrating early, I was like, aha, I know what's going to happen here. And our boy Mitchell comes through and he, he gets the scholarship and, and I was so happy for him because he really he really earned it. One thing that I one thing that I liked about that uh, that plot element is that we never know one way or the other if the election was crooked. Um, it, it's it's certainly implied that Principal Shelley has some sort of relationship with uh, some sort of financial relationship with Mitchell's father, who was form, a former running back at the school and clearly fucking peaked in high school. Good lord! Um, but he uh, ran somebody for hundred yards in a game, Glenn. Financially supports the school, and uh, and you know she's got an interest in maybe uh, maybe stuffing the ballot box in his kid's favor. That's implied, but never elaborated on because yeah, that's the sort of corruption that is generally not brought to the light of day. It would have been nice if when when they lost the election, when Team Kiara lost the election, that they would have done a little bit of introspection of like, okay, like who voted against us and why, right? Because it's so clear that. Kiara is the superior athlete, deserves a scholarship. Yes, women's soccer doesn't make a whole lot of money for the school, and the the football team does, which they they don't they, they showcase, but they don't really ever say out loud. Like the reason why people care about football is it brings a lot of money to the school, and it's more popular of a sport. Which you and I know is kind of a snake eating its own tail. You know, it's it's more popular because it's promoted, because it's more popular, because it's promoted. Like, Well, and because more people are willing to go watch it, right? Like, soccer is the greatest sport in the world, but in the U.S., it's football. I think that uh, I think that cultural preferences don't exist in a vacuum. They are they are created and also interact with uh, uh, with our own biases. So the question of how popular soccer should be, I think, is one that we could go f- pretty far up our own asses about. So we're not going to do that. But uh, but well, it, her, I think it's her beef is well, why don't we get new uniforms each year? Why do we have to like raise money ourselves? And that's a fair question, right? The football teams should be able to pay for the girls' soccer uniforms with the money they bring in. But the answer is because nobody goes to your games. 
the movie was verging on making an interesting point about this divide because uh, Principal, when they go, when they confront Principal Shelley, uh, played by Marsha Gay Harden, who is who is great at uh, at playing, uh, you know, neutral evil characters who uphold the status quo. Oh, she's a lawful uh, let's evil. Say. I guess she is lawful evil. Yeah, but uh, when they when they confront her about it, she first denies that any shenanigans happened at the ballot box, which obviously. Uh, but she also says, "Hey, why?" Or they ask her, "Hey, why did you let Mitchell appear on the morning announcements show?" Why didn't you let Kiera show up on there as well and make her own make her own pitch? And and Mitchell made this whole I've been bullied, you know, what who was is making. Moxie? Yeah. But uh, Principal Shelley's answer was, I let him on there because he asked and you didn't. And if you want to sit at the table, you got to show up. And I think that it is interesting to hear uh, to hear her make this argument. I think that as a as a principal, as an administrator, as the grown up in this situation, she has some responsibility here that she is uh, that that she is not acknowledging uh, to create a pl- a fair playing field. These are just kids, and you can't expect them to know what's fair and what's not. So. As yeah. soon as one candidate comes to you in the middle of an election and says, "Hey, I want to promote myself on the uh, on the morning announcements show," you have to offer that same opportunity to the other kids. A hundred percent. Like I get her point, right? You can't just yell for change and then expect everyone to just agree with you and change. But this was one of the few moments where I I heard the movie making a point to me that I actually thought came about somewhat organically. Even if Principal Shelley's position on this is not defensible, uh, it is at least realistic. <laughs> If you don't demand a seat at the table, you're not going to get one. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the opposite is true. You might demand a seat at the table and they might tell you to go fuck yourself. But, like, you won't know until you try. Right. Um, You can't assume someone's going to invite you to the table of power. Which is part of what Moxie is all about. They're creating their own table. They're creating their own uh, their own message, to, their own method of getting their message out. So through magazines. <laughs> I mean, the equally valid response that Principal Shelley could have mustered here was, "Hey, you had an entire literary zine backing you. They were pushing for your candidate. You didn't let Mitchell sit for an interview with your editorial board. <laughs> like you had your message out there. It was just on a different channel, and that would have maybe been a fair response as well, especially in our current media ecosystem where there's very little overlap between." the media that one side consumes and the media that the other side right consumes. right so basically what you're saying is the morning news announcements is fox news exactly and i mean the the whole election dynamic was a very unsubtle metaphor is all i'm gonna say yeah now i can tell you like all this is way more interesting than vivian's emotional journey because i don't know i don't know about you but like her yelling at her uh her mom and her uh, her mom's boyfriend at the dinner table fucked the patriarchy and had me just a hissy fit and a meltdown was, I don't know, kind of embarrassing uh, to watch. Of course it was, but that didn't make it uninteresting to me. Oh, I was like, oh, come on, grow up. Well, she's a child, Daniel. We're not watching somebody with a fully formed idea of their own identity here. We're watching somebody who became a teen rebel over the course of this film after basically being, we don't know what before that, an introvert. Well, all the other characters seem to have a very good sense of who they are. Yeah, that I mean, that that's maybe what makes Viv a less interesting character with respect to the high school genre. But I thought all the I thought the entire dynamic between her and her mother was was one of the more interesting parts of that of of the film. And uh, Hadley Robinson really conveyed those scenes very well. It's just whenever she was at school doing anything else besides interacting with her mother, I kind of zoned out like you did. So I'm not I'm not fully disagreeing with you here. I just think that. Uh, the stuff at home is where I would give the where I would give both these actors some credit here. Yeah, we're watching her melt down, but that's what's happening here. And when she goes to she goes to her room and her mom comes and talks to her, um, 
you know, she's also got issues with her dad being gone and uh, not wanting to spend time at Christmas with her. Just little little things that are thrown well, in there. Well, can you imagine why? I mean, why? It, it tells me that there's more going on here than just what... That, that this girl contains multitudes. That there's more going on here than just what we see on screen. I just wish that other characters besides her had gotten a chance to show that kind of depth. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, we had a few other uh, characters here. We had Amaya, who was the blink and you'll miss it love interest for Lucy. I don't know if you saw that. but I, uh, I, did, I didn't blink, nor did I miss it. I saw it for a half a second. We checked that box, and then we moved on. Uh, we had Emma, who, uh, who it turns out is Mitchell's ex. And I don't think we need to get into what happens in the third act. But I will say, I, I agree, it was kind of uh, it was it was kind of a shift in tone. But I think it was something the movie was clearly building towards. The idea, that, I, mean, I mean, Lucy looks at a guy like Mitchell and says... And says that guy's dangerous. And if there's one thing Patrick Schwarzenegger did well in this film, it was convey these what might be dismissed as bad boy antics as something more sinister than than what they might be treated he, he as. He had an undercurrent of malevolence. Yeah, the idea that this guy would show up and just like fuck with you while you're trying to buy a drink and then show his rage before that scene is even over because you're failing to acknowledge his genius adequately enough. Like that did feel like the movie telling me, yes, every woman has been through this situation, you know, and again, to a degree ticking that box. But at the same time, I expected this guy to be worse. That was what was conveyed in his, in his performance here. There's something worse going on here than just this guy being an entitled shithead. I did like his friend on the football team. That was his loyal, his hype man, his hype this, man. He was great. Yeah. That was Jay. Jason, played by the actor Joshua Walker, and I will tell you, he is the one who started me down the path of thinking this movie had a people of color cheerleading white people problem, but <laughs> he's, he's not the only one. He is just the most vocal one. He's very vocal. Yeah, I mean, they could they, they plunked, I think it was, uh, uh, oh, I'm trying to think who played him. It might have been Kenan Thompson in Not Another Teen Movie, uh, played, the, played a guy who's literally identified as the token black guy, uh-huh. who's just supposed to smile, stay out of the conversation, and say things like, damn, shit, and that is whack. That is who this character is, and while it makes a certain amount of sense that a shitheel like Mitchell would attract somebody like this, it does, it's not a good look. Football is a brotherhood, Glenn. It's a brotherhood. No, it's a brotherhood. Now, I know you, you, you have never played sports, but have no concept of brotherhood. I have played sports, Daniel. You I just stopped who, before high school like a normal person. You who jammed your thumb when we played catch one time, you know... I get it. Sports scare you and you don't know what to do. But when you play sports on a team... I literally joined ROTC so I wouldn't have to go to regular gym class. Exactly. <laughs> you you were afraid of runaround time. Now, when you have a brotherhood, you, know, you, you, you always support your guys because you've gone through stuff and experienced things as a collective that other people haven't. Like what? And that bonds people and brings people together. Now, I, I mean, I did you not have the same thing with your ROTC group? When you guys marched and pretended like you were in the military. Dude, we literally went down to a Marine base in uh, California, and we went to N- U.S. Navy firefighting school. True story. But uh, So, yeah, we I did bond with some people on that basis, but it felt a little different than, uh, than you know, we bumped chests and partied together. <laughs> well, maybe you were just not invited to those parties. <laughs> Quite possibly. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? I, I I know I've been uh, pretty correct a lot. Like, I think a message is important. I guess I was baffled by how they were conducting it a bit. Um, I, I, I didn't really like Vivian as a character. That's no, that's no disrespect uh, to Hadley Robinson, uh, who, who did do a per- good performance. And I agree with you. Her dynamic with uh, Amy Poehler as her mom was interesting. I guess I just felt like the movie should have been a lot more, either more mature 
or more tech heavy and clever and witty. I I heard it was a comedy going into this and I didn't laugh at all. And I, I didn't really see opportunities where there was actual comedy. Yeah, I, th- I think some of that is just expectations of what you think you're going to get with Amy, Amy Poehler. Poehler film, yeah. so. uh, and, and I think that Amy Poehler has every right to be more serious than than an episode of Parks and Recreation. Yeah, sure. you know, she's not genre limited here, but uh, it, it does inform our expectations a little bit, certainly. I, I didn't think it was a bad film. I guess it, it's a film that wasn't mature enough for, for older people like us and not clever and I think witty enough for younger generations. I think this movie had a focus problem, and I don't think that it quite knew how to delve into all of these issues. I think that it, uh, I think that it just knew how to list all of them, but it did not have the kind of depth on them that it needed, and that was a real problem. It, w- so. it would have been good if they just focused on maybe two or three things and just deep dived on those, and didn't have to check all the boxes. Well, that brings us to the end of our boring white dude discussion on the movie Moxie. If you have any feedback on our discussion, which you may well, uh, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of The Courier. I'm far from boring. Sounds like work. No, tell them I'm in my chair. Yes, he's just walked in. This is unexpected. I can't believe I'm actually having lunch with spies. (laughs) I'm just a salesman. Exactly. You're a civilian, so the KGB won't be watching. It would be a real service to Great Britain. What do you want me to do? I'm here to open a door to the top manufacturers in the West. Will I be putting myself in danger? If this mission was the least bit dangerous, you really are the last man we'd send. Make sure you wear it while you're in Moscow. What does this do? Shoot poison darts? Everyone you meet, assume they're KGB. Every Russian is an eye of the state. You'll just be a courier. Just a courier for Russian secrets. From now on, you will be selling one thing. The idea that you are an ordinary businessman and nothing more than an ordinary businessman. That was from the trailer of The Courier, the new film from director Dominic Cook, written by Tom O'Connor, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Marab Nidzi, Rachel Brosnahan, Jesse Buckley, and Angus Wright. This film features Benedict Cumberbatch as Greville Wynn, a uh, real-life British spy of sorts, uh, more of an asset for the British government, who goes to work for them, cultivating a relationship with a GRU colonel who is uh, based out of Moscow, Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, played by Marab Nidzi who comes to be known as Alias Ironbark, who is committing treason against his country by giving them secret intelligence about the Soviet nuclear program on the eve of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Daniel, this film tells a story that I was not all that familiar with. I knew that, uh, you know, we've had we've had spies in, in Russia throughout the Cold War, and they've had spies here throughout the Cold War and beyond. Uh and that all feels like pretty well-tread territory. I actually just finished watching the entire, all, all, uh, all six seasons of The Americans, uh, which is about a, uh, a couple living in the 1980s as deep cover KGB operatives posing as, Amer- as an American married couple. That series has a few things in common with this film in that it really tries to get into the human side of these stories about, you know, these are, as they say in the film, just two people. Um, they have their own motivations for what they're doing. They think of themselves as more than just a collection of ideologies. They have credible and sincere reasons why they're doing what they're doing, and they fear for their lives as they're doing it. And 
it's not hard to wring some drama out of that. But the question that this film, I think, needed to justify pretty quickly was, why tell this story? Um, I talked about this in the context of the uh, the, the Tom Hanks film from, uh, from last year, Greyhound. It was about an American naval destroyer that was uh, hunting a U-boat that uh, was menacing its convoy of merchant ships going across the uh, the Atlantic. There was uh, there have not been, there's not been a lot of depiction of this convoying behavior that was done both during World War One and World War Two uh, to protect merchant ships from uh, attacks by Nazi Germany in World War Two and the German uh, Navy before that uh, in World War One. It's an interesting area of history, but. What I kept thinking as I was watching it was, why tell this story now? You know, we're 70 years on from it. There has to be some specific hook about this story that makes me interested in it. And for what it's worth, that is not a feeling that I experienced while watching this film. I was fairly riveted by this story straight away, whether it was uh, that it managed to maintain a fairly consistently chipper tone for the first hour or so. I think the music uh, by Abel Korzanowski helped a lot with that. Um, But... uh, even as it gets more serious, and I dare say dire as the film get, goes on, it kind of gets there pretty naturally. And by the time it does, we really do care about these characters. So um, that was my experience. Uh, what did you think of this film? You know, uh, the Cold War is not a, a time period of history I study. Uh, my, I, I've mentioned this before. I view history as ending at the end of World War Two. So all of this is new information for me. I, I didn't know about Ironbark or... Um, I understood there were spies between, you know, the UK and, and, and Russia, but I didn't know this story. And, and so this was all new and uh, somewhat interesting to me. I felt like the movie talked about the high stakes that were involved. I felt like it was more of a bromance with spy stuff on the side. But I, overall, I liked it. It kept me engaged throughout. I think that uh, this film justifies itself in the same way as a World War II drama does, that you that you have to remember that the characters themselves don't know how these things are going to end, and that can be useful as a storytelling device if you make the stakes feel world-ending for those characters. So it works in something like Casablanca, where, you know, it's 1941 when that movie, or it's 1940 when that movie was made. They had no idea what was going to happen with Nazi Germany. It could take over all of Europe. And they're, uh, they're all in this, uh, they're all in this North African port town. They're all trying to sneak around the, uh, the German secret police and find a way to just escape the entire situation. So the feeling of danger feels very palpable and feels very real. And that was something that I think this film did very well, uh, as, as well. I mean, you say that it, it felt like a bromance with spy stuff attached to it, but I think that getting into the human side of whether these guys really care about each other becomes very important as the film goes on uh, because there's a great deal of faith required you're putting your life in the hands of a source when you do this kind of work and he and they're putting their life in your hands and i think the movie really uh, conveyed that really well yeah but, i was i was more interested in uh greville's relationship with his wife sheila and that degradation over time i thought that i was- i have plenty to say about that but i think we're gonna need to get into spoilers before we uh, talk about that further what did you think of jesse buckley's performance as sheila win she was pretty convincing as an aggrieved wife. Uh, she has some good one-liners, you know, towards the end of the film. I was like, ooh, snappy wife. <laughs> she, she's pissed. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the actress Natalie Walker um, has, a, has an ongoing series of videos where it's her doing her audition piece for basically just shitty female roles. And she has one that I quite enjoyed. It's her. It came out right after the movie The First Man, which is about Neil Armstrong. Uh, and... And there's a uh, and and uh, Neil Armstrong's wife is played by a British actress of some renown. I cannot think of her name right now, but um, uh, 
and, and I believe she was not possibly nominated for for an award for that. And she doesn't really do much in the film except wait for her his, her husband to make it home and do a history, as as Natalie Walker's uh, parody put it. I think there is a tradition in these films of bringing in these very capable actresses to play basically nothing parts because they're not the ones who are doing the plot. They're just the ones who are there to add stakes to the plot to kind of give the protagonist a bit they more flavor. Yeah, yeah they, they are purely reactive characters. And I think that this movie was aware of that trope and managed to somewhat subvert it uh, as the film goes on. But I, I can't really get into further detail on that until we get into spoilers. So I want to hold off on that. But I very much like Jesse Buckley's performance here. And I think that she got a little bit more to do uh, than an actress that is typically slotted into this role. Yeah, I, I uh, agree. I, I enjoy her performance as well. And I like that Cumberbatch was, was a salesperson. As a salesperson, you know, I, I could identify his struggles to be a, a spy, to master spycraft. And... Yeah, you know, a salesmanship is all about relationship building, and he builds quite the nice relationship with Oleg. Like, every time Oleg says, can I take you to the airport, I felt a connection between the two. Like, <laughs> what do we mean? Are we really going to the airport, or are we going to the airport? They spend half their time either going to the airport or going to the Bolshoi to uh, to see uh, the lovely Russian State Ballet, uh, which I have yeah. seen, and it is lovely. <laughs> Because of course it is, and I agree. Like I guess, I guess to go back to my previous point, I knowing the outcome makes the stakes feel less. But you're you're right to the characters where the well, you Iran- know the global outcome. You know that the that the Cuban Missile Crisis Correct. did not destroy the world, but that doesn't change the fact that it could have done that. And and honestly, like with uh, before the the direct line between the two countries was uh, established, we could have ended it at any time, and so could they. I think that um, this film, again, like the Americans, does a good job of getting into the heads of the Russians and trying to see it from their perspective. But I think that it's primarily a rah-rah, let's-go-the-West story. I think that's very much the perspective you're meant to have going into this. Look at this heroic Russian guy who had the foresight to betray his country because his country are the bad guys. We do get moments like uh, Kirill Pirogov as uh, as Grabanov, who is a KGB guy. Uh, and we see him a number of times being just a very slick interrogator. I very much like this performance. They're comes a moment where he's uh where he's talking about the cuban missile crisis and he says hey they've had the west has had nuclear missiles in turkey pointed at us exactly the same distance away this as as cuba is from the continental united states this whole time all of a sudden we put some missiles in cuba pointing back at you and all of a sudden it's a world-ending crisis does that seem fair to you (laughs) and looking back at this you know 60 years 60 years on my main reaction to this is what an insane situation for humanity to get itself into (laughs) but you know he's kind of got a point and and we're still in that situation now yeah we've got a hotline between the two of us and we've also sort of got an unspoken understanding that annihilating the human race is something we don't want to do but we all lose in that outcome so maybe not maybe we yeah, don't plus uh, plus i think people are realizing that money and uh, information theft is much easier without actually leveling cities and, and killing more millions fun. of people I think it's more fun <laughs> yeah the, the the great game is happening entirely in cyberspace now so um do you still mean to win the great game yourself daniel oh i'm still playing <laughs> but uh to the extent that it gets into the Russians' heads is with that relationship between between Oleg, who there's it's kind of it's it's almost annoying to me because I have no problem pronouncing either Oleg, which is how it's said by by English speakers, or Ariag, which is how it's said by by Russians. 
He says, my name sounds ugly in English. Call me Alex. That felt like something for the audience. And I'm like, dude, Greville Wynn is no fucking picnic spoken aloud in English either. Uh, Greville is a fantastic name. (laughs) Just call each other by your horrible, ugly names. It's fine. But uh, I I don't think Oleg has a bad name in English. I think it sounds fine. I don't think that there's been an Oleg in film that has not been a villain until this film. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say Grenville, not Greville. It is Greville. It's not I, Grenville. I know, but I want to say Grenville because oh, Grenville enough. was a prime minister. So that's you want to take one of those uh, one of those ends in his last name and transfer it exactly because uh, Grenville was a was a prime minister in the UK, and I'm like, gotcha. You know, like, like I guess pops to mind every time I see his name, like Greville. Yeah. Greville. I, I think I think that the movie wisely chose to feature an actor's portrayal of Nikita Khrushchev uh, addressing the Party Congress, giving his infamous "I will bury you." It's literally "I will bury them." Uh, speech uh basically saying hey we've you know we've got the nukes we're gonna we're gonna seek a confrontation with the west basically um because that was that was the beginning of what kicked off the cuban missile crisis was was this this kind of blowhard deciding hey we need to we need to really amp things up we need to really increase the increase the tension here um and that's that until it, until it came to a head and we decided, OK, we're either going to destroy each other or we're going to back down here. And really, some of the best Cold War fiction came out of that period where us destroying ourselves really seemed like a major possibility. So creating that sort of fiction now when we know that it didn't happen and is, you know, while not completely off the table, at least a bit less likely to happen now. Um, it has to it has to mean something beyond just let's tell the story about this horrible part of American history. And it has to have something that feels a bit more enduring than that. And I think that's where these two um, very good performances from from Cumberbatch and Nanidzi come into this, because their performances are really what make this movie work. Well, they're on screen a majority of the time. And if their relationship doesn't make sense and doesn't work, the movie fails. I think we've probably gone about as far as we can without uh, talking about where this goes. So shall we go ahead and get into spoilers? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, uh, the Cold War, we do survive it, but only just. It's cold and never warms up. From here on out, spoilers for The Courier. So, uh, Daniel, I made a minor boo-boo while watching this film. Uh, when Alieg drops of what appears to be a fatal heart attack an hour into this film, mm-hmm. I went ahead and clicked on his Wikipedia page. So I was like, oh, he dies. Well, that messes everything up. I wonder what's going to happen now. Well, he doesn't die, at least not on that occasion. So I clicked through to his Wikipedia, and I see that he was exposed as a traitor and executed. So I, right. I knew where that was going. I That was my mistake. I shouldn't have been on there. But Well, as soon as he smokes the cigarettes, I was like, aha. Poison cigarettes. It, it certainly seems as if... Uh, oh, I didn't even catch that, actually. I mean, we know the KGB guy slipped in poison. That gets revealed later on. I didn't realize that the cigarettes were the avenue for that. That's clever. Yeah, he... When, uh, what's his face? Uh, Gribanov. Gribanov says... When uh, the interrogator fellow says, you know, I'll send you a carton. I was like, yeah, that's definitely poison cigarettes. <laughs> See, I, I struck that as having a different meaning because uh, people smuggling in contraband into the Soviet Union, which contraband was any goods that were not authorized to be imported, basically, which is most of them. That was that was meant to be a test. Will this guy 
will, will this guy basically break a minor rule? And is that a sign of him potentially breaking a larger rule? Um, so it being treated as a test of his loyalty, that's kind of where I thought it was going. And that turned out to not be the case at all. They were just using it as a means of getting into his apartment and finding yeah, his secret hiding place, his, little, yeah. his little camera. And it's, um, which is, which is too bad. Did you like the camera? I, I thought as I was watching this, I thought Glenn will like the camera. I've seen that prop before, actually. Uh, in fact, I think that exact prop may have cropped up on the Americans. Granted, it was supposed to be 20 years later on the Americans, so the, the, the gear they were using was period appropriate, but it was very similar in nature. It looked like a little, just a little fold-up film camera, basically, was yeah. all it was. I found it interesting, you know, we saw the uh, we saw the map, that infamous map from the Cuban Missile Crisis of the missile ranges from Cuba, which I'm sure we've all seen versions of before. Uh, because you know, in Seattle, that map is a bit of a uh, a bit of a strut uh, kind of move. Because we're like, aha, Seattle's fine no matter what. Uh, you know, as if they wouldn't just fly their bombers over the Arctic Circle and go straight for us. We've got like a quarter of our country's nukes stored within a hundred miles of here, so we would very much not be okay in the event of a nuclear war. But, I'd be fine. But you know, we know exactly what that means. Looking at a map of the United States centered on Cuba with with missile ranges on it. Of course, we've had to deal with similar maps uh, with uh, you know North Korea at the center of the map, and we see that the the various circles encompass Guam, encompass American Samoa, encompass possibly Hawaii or even the West Coast. Yeah, but like we we have the same maps of their countries, so. At least we knew what the stakes were as he was doing these things, and uh, and this is where Nancy's performance really gets into this because he starts off just being afraid of Khrushchev because he thinks that he's the real that he, that he's really going to do it that he's really going to push the button. Yeah, he, you know? he he's dumb enough or vicious enough to actually yeah move forward. Which is you know potentially another way in which this film resonates because uh, you know I, I I'm not sure why but right now the idea of somebody who is uh, temperamentally unsuited to be in control of nuclear weapons is on everybody's mind right now. <laughs> so turns out that's a pretty uh, serious responsibility. Yeah, the idea that. If we think that the worst of human that humanity has to offer shouldn't be in control of the future of the species of whether it gets to keep existing, maybe we just need to take that power out of any particular person's hands. Maybe that power should just not exist. But uh, that's that's uh, you know that's always the unspoken message of any Cold War film is that nukes are bad. So hard to hard to get around that. Now I'll tell you a detail I really enjoyed was uh, our time in Russian prison because yes. I've I. I've read a book on uh, Stalinism and, and uh, the time period of Stalin's rule and Russian prison is no joke. Like they would torture you mentally and physically to break you down to admit to whatever that they were accusing you of and or like however fabricated it is, get you a sign and then execute you. And so I like the details of the sleep deprivation of, you know, basically freezing them out of you know taking away his uh, his bedding, uh, you know all all the different things that they, that they try to do to get him the break. Yeah, and Cumberbatch noticeably changes in appearance. He looks gaunt by the time this. Yeah, is of course they shave his head, they shave off his beautiful mustache, and uh, and you know he's treated like a political prisoner. He's treated like political prisoners are treated around the world, and uh, you know that's not okay. But it's 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 the focus of the last thirty minutes here, and this is where. Um, this is where Sheila gets a little bit something more to do. Now, before we talk about Sheila, I want to talk about Emily uh, or alias Helen. We don't actually know what her real name is, but she is the CIA representative who is driving all of this. Uh, we learned that the CIA is involved in this because they are thin on the ground. And the reason why they want to get the Brits involved is because they don't have a lot of sources in Moscow anymore because they just lost a guy named Popov, who is a uh, real guy. 
Uh, he was a uh, he was some sort of high ranking uh, Russian army officer. I looked him up afterward, and he was caught and executed as a uh, as an American spy. And he also exposed a number of other people who associated with him as a result. So as a result, the CIA spy network in Moscow was basically obliterated in that one move. So they they had to rely on the Brits to be able to to deal with this situation of. This, this colonel basically slipping a note to a random American and telling him to take it to the embassy. So so obviously the Americans want to continue receiving intelligence from this because they brought this source to the Brits. They obviously get, continue to get a seat at the table. Even if that table's uh, literally in a partitioned hotel ballroom. Uh, did, did you enjoy that, Daniel? Uh, I saw the air walls. I'm like, ah, they took a mask it, but that's definitely air walls. For the most part, this movie is very well made. It's got, you know, for for a movie that is clearly on the lower end of the budget uh, scale, makes a lot of use of stock footage. Um, that's every scene involving the CIA takes place in this conference room. That's very clearly not a real conference room. Uh, but I, I did not allow that to distract me. That just amused me. But uh, Emily has a number of moments where she is driving characters to commit to particular actions uh, in a way where I'm like, okay, I can see why this person is a, is an expert spy handler. Um, she doesn't have a ton of screen time and she really conveys her, her competence and sincerity in that role quite easily in those scenes. There, the initial uh, recruitment scene here where they, they recruit Greville and they successfully convey to Greville that he's going to be working for the security services and doing something important, but they don't tell him what any of it is about. You're just going to go there and come back, do some business in Russia, come back. You're going to meet this Russian guy and you're going to invite him to come to London. And he's going to be thrilled about that. Um, so he does all that. And they, and they tell him, hey, you know, you're a middle-aged man. You're not in great shape. You drink a lot. You're probably the last person we'd send if we thought this mission was dangerous. And at the time, that was true. But when it comes time for the mission to be dangerous, that's when Emily chimes in. And Emily, over the course of like three lines, proceeds to scare the ever-loving shit out of him about nuclear war. She tells him, hey, I looked up the building plans for your for your kid's school, for your wife's for your wife's work, for, uh, for the building that you work in, for your your apartment building you know only the government has real fallout shelters everybody else in the uk is going to be fucking dead in four minutes do you want to be part of that like holy yeah. shit like that yeah that is uh what we refer to as a pro gamer move yes it's it's very good and it's also i mean it's diabolical is what it is and of course he does the job and of course he's willing to start lying to his wife because Greville should have said, I don't care about my son. He didn't bring jackets to camping when I specifically told him to bring the jackets. And it was the one thing I asked him to do. Well, and we see the ways in which this is starting to get to him. Him yelling at his son for just the most trifling of offenses is one of them. But he also starts to get distant. You, you from have him. you have some manner of collection of children. Yes. Like, yes, I do. Have you not ever yelled at them for telling them to do something, giving them one task and watching them just fail utterly? In all sincerity, I've definitely allowed my own stress level to uh, to make me uh Act in a way that is harsher toward my toward my kids than I than I should. You know, and you're not a master spy, because in order to uh, in order to deal with children, you have to have immense patience. And if you let that patience slip because of how you're feeling, you will occasionally speak the truth to them, like, "Hey, stop being a little shithead." Uh, not literally, but that's the tone that is conveyed. So I, I very much identified with that. It, it's it's a scene that. You know, it's it's very fleeting, but it's also the sort of thing that causes his wife to immediately remark to him, "Hey, what is wrong with you?" Yeah, you're working out all the time. Are you having another affair? 
Exactly. And that's where we learn that he has that there's been a previous uh, issue of infidelity in this marriage. We refer to those as dalliances um, that he that that they worked through that she forgave him for, but that there are still clearly some trust issues involved here and understandably so. So this guy agreed to this lifestyle because he because he wanted to protect his family. And that meant lying to his family. And uh, and really, uh, Cumberbatch conveys just what a what an awful position this puts him in but it's only when he gets captured that we get to see what an awful position that it puts his wife in because she not only has to she has to tell these spies when they come to her door look i know this i know you're lying to me um you know they they come to her with the lie they come to her with the idea that the russians arrested him thinking he's a spy but oh it's a complete misunderstanding we don't know what's going on the foreign office is going to try and work it out you just need to you just need to support him all british people look the same to the russians so they grab the wrong guy yeah, so then she dismisses the british guy and tells the american uh tells the american cia agent you need to tell me the truth about what's going on here because I don't believe a word of this. Like he was really doing something. I know that he was different. I know that he was concealing something from me. What is going on? And Emily, of course, cannot tell her what it is about, cannot tell her why he was doing any of this. Well, but, but tells her what she's going to have to do to save her husband's life. And that is pretend to everyone that he is a dupe. Anybody asks you, the press, your best friend, you tell them the same story. My husband couldn't possibly be a spy. And we see a number of scenes in which she has to do exactly that. We see a number of scenes in which she is clearly tempted to break kayfabe and say, no, it's real. He really was. But And, and the movie does a great job of making us feel paranoid that even her best friend that we've seen interacting with her over the course of the film could be an asset of the KGB. We all can. I could be right now. You don't know. Yeah, I mean, when 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 Oleg is explaining to him tradecraft, essentially, he's saying he he literally says every Russian is a potential eye of the state, um, and he talks about lip readers, he talks about bugs, he talks about room searches. Uh, you know, he talks about even the people who are not KGB, they're going to report to the KGB, or they're going to report to somebody who's going to report to the KGB. You can't be you at any point. You have to rely on my judgment. You have to not talk about anything that'll compromise you, except if I talk about it first. Um, and, th- and then all of a sudden, his wife, who has none of that training, is put into the same position. So I, I, th- I thought that Jesse Buckley really pulled that off well. I agree. And I, I was happy to see that she had more to do than just be, be, be the housewife. Being that know? wife. Like when uh, things are going south uh, between her and, and Greville, and she's aggressively painting that wall, and he asks if she can send yeah. help, and she just lays down the, the, a very curt reply. I was like, ooh. I've been there. It goes further than that because when he shows up to say, hey, I've got to go to Moscow one last time to close out one last account, and we know that what he's doing is taking a dangerous trip back to Russia. A foolish trip. To try and save his friend, who he thinks is in danger, and, and it, you know they need his help to convey the extraction plan to him, that they're going to either have him bring him and his family on a vacation to East Germany, or they're going to, the plan they ended up settling on was smuggling him out of Moscow up to a, uh, to a port city on the North coast up near St. Petersburg, and then go across the Gulf of Finland on a boat. Um, would have been lovely. Doesn't work out that way <laughs> uh, because the KGB were 10 steps ahead of them as it turns out. And I, I, I mean, that entire sequence when they're going back to uh, to Russia and and before it all goes pear-shaped, it's really, I mean, it's quite a brilliant sequence. I, I very much enjoyed this. Uh, I love just everything they do with the airplanes back then. 
right? Like you got oh, yes. to go walk on the out on the tarmac and like greet your friend <laughs> or say, you know, say adieu as they board the plane. Can't do that now. Well, the sense of doom here that, uh, you know, they Oleg comes home and says, hey, we have to leave before he realizes the KGB are sitting in there with his family. So he's already yeah. confessed at this point. So it doesn't really matter. Um they know he's about to run, but Greville is just, he's gotten on his plane and he's leaving and that's it. Now, right before this, we had an amazing scene with the two of them and it is the last scene that we see the two of them happily together in this film. And what we get is Greville walking into his office, uh, having made it all the way to Moscow, immediately Oleg puts a, puts a finger to his lips. He's clearly happy to see his friend, but puts a finger to his lips and and says to him silently, don't say anything, this office is bugged. And the rest of the scene, he puts on a loud radio, and the two of them are whispering in each other's ears. We can maybe make out one or two words in between, but we don't get to hear what they're saying to each other. We just get to hear it conveyed. We, we get to see it conveyed in their expressions, in their body language, in the ways that they're squeezing each other's arms and conveying this information to each other. It's a, it's a completely silent piece of acting, and it was just so good. It's very well done, I agree. Um, but then right after that, we have uh, we have Greville on the plane after we know we know that Oleg has been captured with his family and we have the uh, the confession scene with his family. But uh, we hear an announcement in Russian on the plane. He asks his seatmate, hey, you know what this is about? Guy doesn't speak English. The guy right behind him does speak English and, and translates for him conveniently. And then in the next scene, that guy turns out <laughs> to be a KGB guy who was right there with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was brilliant. Uh, every every so he, part of that was so brilliant. So Greville's in prison for eight years. Is it eight years? Yeah, it's eight years, at least on the Wikipedia page, is what it's saying. I don't think the movie depicted him there that long. It showed him coming home in 1964, so he was only in prison for three years, as the movie depicts it. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, the movie also fudges the timeline of uh, uh, of Oleg's execution a little bit, because he's executed in like mid-1963, so he was already dead by the time that, that uh, Greville was sent home. I think there's something else the movie does, which felt like a cinematic affectation. And I'm wondering what's I'm wondering if you know the scene. Oh, when they hold hands and he's like, you dig it, Oleg, or Alex, you dig it. And yeah, that was for the movie. So we see them bringing uh, they bring him in and they first they tell they tell Greville that your friend has given you up. It's every man for himself. And that's what they're trying. That's been their tact to try and get him to to give up his friends. Classic prisoner's dilemma tactic. Your friend gave you up. There's no reason why you shouldn't tell us what's going on here. But if he gives it up, if he if he says, yes, I knew what was in those packages that I carried to uh, to London, it was secret KGB plan or secret uh, Soviet nuclear plans. Like, no, he, he he's playing the dupe quite brilliantly and keeping that story up, even though. You know, months and years are passing with him not seeing his family. Oh, you know what? I I, I was mistaken. I, I read it wrong. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but he got out earlier. Ah, got it. Okay, so so him coming home in 1964 was what? accurate. Yes, that is accurate. He, he uh, returned because of uh, poor health, and then they found that other yeah, guy. That, well, that certainly that certainly yeah, tracks. And they found that other guy, uh, Colin Mulvaney. Yeah. So the. The scene with with the other with Oleg being brought to him, and of course they both look like shit at this point. I obviously don't believe no. that this scene ever happened. You don't bring your two your two spies together so they can now, coordinate that their was the based on and, a real story. That was the based on part, right? Now that now that said, um, the idea that this movie is a sort of elegy, both for the friendship that these two men shared and uh, and the and the service that they did for the world. Can I imagine? 
that this guy, that Oleg, got this information in some way, that he knows that the Soviet Union stood down and pulled its missiles out of Cuba and that the world is no longer on the brink of nuclear war. Can I imagine some guard in his cell telling him that, even though they're not supposed to? Yes, I can imagine that. So this this movie's... I mean, information flowed freely in and out of that country, even despite their best efforts. So that's why I can imagine it happening. But of course, we'll never know. Like, this guy was taken into a gulag and executed. So... The idea that we imagine him having just a moment of happiness before he dies is the movie giving us a tender mercy, basically, as an audience. And I recognized it as that. And I can't say it was historically inaccurate, because, except to say this scene probably did not happen in this way. Most likely, he had no idea. He was was in isolation the whole time. And then when your time's up, you got shot. Yeah, because if somebody betrays your country and you are a and and you regard their act as 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 an act of treason and you regard yourself as fundamentally ideologically opposed to that, the last thing you're going to want to do is give that person any sense that their action was successful, justified, or in any way beneficial to them. You want them to think that their that their action was pointless until the moment they die, and it's it's an interesting contrast because somebody accused of treason in the United States would still be able to freely speak with their lawyer. They would still be able to get information. First they a Substack, and they would get you know invited exactly. to like Fox News and like any other outlet that would take them, and they would talk about how they were canceled. Well, as long as they spend enough words every week bashing <laughs> trans people for no reason, like Glenn Greenwald is making sport right. of right now, um, they would they would be allowed to to speak their piece. But um, but yeah, this guy this guy is in a world where you know you you commit treason, you disappear, you go away. Yeah, the Ru- the Russians the Russians did real cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah can i i don't mind this this beautiful moment of emotional catharsis between these two because it just felt like something that the two of them would have desperately wanted as depicted in this film and i felt real feeling as i was watching it for the, for the two of them like how sad that this is the last moment these two are going to see each other even if it wasn't real it's nice to imagine i knew it wasn't historically accurate uh, normally that bugs me but i felt like the characters earned it it was a small scene and it's not like it's not like uh, anything happened after that that was like even like more egregious, right? Like historically inaccurate. They basically got to close the loop with their friendship. Yeah. And yeah, like I, I had no problem with it. I thought it was a sweet scene. The entire movie for the last half hour is kind of taken on a, a Dreyfus affair kind of quality at this point, where they're all just kind of maintaining their partisan sides, and it's all it's all about a matter of statecraft at this point. You know, everybody. Like the Soviets definitely really think that the, that he's a spy and are probably pretty sure that they're correct about that. And the Brits are maintaining that he's not, but they're probably pretty sure the Soviets know it's not true. And it's really just a matter of a, of coming to a deal that everybody exactly. can live with. And all of that stuff happens off screen. That might be a very interesting movie, but that's not what happens. Well, I mean, it sounds like they're just like, well, we can't trade him in for a real spy that we've already captured because that would play our, that would show our hand. So... That would tell that would tell the Soviets that we regard him and acknowledge exactly. him as a real spy, and we can't do that. Of course, that's what they end up doing in the end. Yeah, anyway. but they waited. Long so the enough. answer is really just you have to wait long enough that it doesn't matter yeah. anymore. They waited long enough that like the hand wasn't it wasn't going to mean anything at that point, or it meant less if they showed it. So, so after after thirty minutes of just watching this character get beaten down as a consequence of his of his own choices here, his own somewhat justifiable choices, but still. Um, it, it's nice to give him that moment. Uh, he also gets a moment with his wife when she's allowed to come see him. And she straight up says, 
you know, the foreign office is telling me it's a good sign that they're allowing me to come see you. It, it tells me that maybe they're willing to let you go, but it, it might be so another year. Yourself. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the one thing keeping him going. Because I certainly so. wasn't a stupid child who couldn't... Can't even remember to bring the jackets. Couldn't even remember jackets when it was a possibility of rain. Do you know what the real secret of what? that uh, is, Daniel? It's that if your kid forgets the jackets, it's your fault for trusting them to bring the jackets. I can't cancel my children, so there's an accountability culture that we have to <laughs> you know, instill. And if I say, bring the jackets, and you fail to bring the jackets, you're the one who failed. It's not like, yeah, you could throw it on the project manager, sure. You certainly try to instill a sense of responsibility and consequences uh, to them, but you know you definitely regarded it. You are the prime mover in this scenario. <laughs> if your kids fuck something up, you're responsible for it. Overall, I, I I did love the film. I wasn't like really really engaged in the relationships as much. I did like the interplay, as I said, you know, between Sheila and, and uh, Greville, and I did like Olaf and, and or Alex and Greville, but it wasn't. The bromance didn't, you know, really uh, capture my attention as maybe it did you. But overall, I thought for a pretty tight-knit spy thriller, it was pretty solid. Yeah, I think uh, obviously that relationship, I think, uh, captured my imagination a bit more than yours. But uh, but yeah, it's a very slickly made film. I got to give another shout out to Abel Korzanowski's score here because... It, it does a very good job of tone management throughout this film because it really tells you, okay, we're a little bit chipper now. Oh, things are getting a bit more serious. Now, I literally have a note here uh, in the third act. I'm like, the music is not <laughs> fucking around now. When he goes back to Moscow for the last time, the music makes no bones about the fact that this oh, is the yeah, dangerous yeah, yeah. trip This isn't Moscow. the happy sales trip. Yeah. Really solid management of tone, does a good job of justifying uh, telling this story. And uh, yeah, I very much enjoyed it. And, and I really appreciated how much Benedict Cumberbatch committed yeah. to this performance, both uh, you know physically and uh, and emotionally. Yeah, I mean, he shaped his stash, he shaped his head. It looks like he lost some weight. It certainly looks that way. Uh, Rachel Brosnahan, I already sh- uh, gave a shout out to here, is very good as well. Um, the other, the, the British guy, I think, was very was just less interesting between the two of the Mangus, right? But uh, well, but, uh, yeah, Emily has fun. a little bit of a spy moment as well. She had to like disguise herself in a bookshop and slip away from some uh, some police. Oh yeah, all the foot chase stuff, the decoys. Uh, you know, she she goes into the into the American embassy. Uh, under she's there under an official cover she's a diplomat and uh then she goes straight into the safe room which is like which is like a big glass box inside of a inside of like a wood paneled conference room it's quite amazing to see and uh, something like this, a secure compartmentalized information facility, or SCIF, uh, exists in various forms throughout the United States government. And the idea of seeing like a 1960s version of this was very cool. Um, just very thick glass, multiple layers, meant to be surveillance proof. Um, also, she can tell what it is that she's doing there, which is briefing the person who's going to be the decoy uh, during their attempt to smuggle uh, Oleg's family out of Moscow. But uh, yeah, it all goes horribly wrong. Um, but it's all very well staged. Uh, and and uh, yeah, then Emily gets PNG'd, um, gets uh, gets persona non grata and sent out of the country. So if you're there under an official cover, you're probably okay because the worst they're going to do is throw your ass out. Yep, and be lucky that's the worst they'll do to you. Um, you know, they might give you a savage beating beforehand, but uh, which it certainly seemed like she'd been roughhoused a little bit before she got back to the embassy. But they, you know, they. Then they just handed her a piece of paper and told her to get the fuck yep. out within 24 hours. So, and I'm sure she was probably being followed oh, every yeah. moment yeah, after 100%. that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, Daniel, that's about all I got. Any final thoughts about the film? 
I think you should, uh, people should check it out. It's, it gives some good performances. It's a solid little piece of spy thriller. And yeah, it's, it's a version of the Cuban Missile Crisis that uh, we haven't heard before. Well, The Courier is out on premium VOD this weekend, and uh, you can check it out on all major platforms. Uh, if you have any feedback on our discussion of The Courier, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net, and have a good night.